0: Hey, everyone, I want to welcome you back to the channel. Welcome you back to my podcast. You know, one of the things I've got going on in my life right now is a side project. I, I'm working with um, companies to develop various like employee training courses in a wide variety of subjects, including um, emotional intelligence for, for one particular company. And, um, as I'm working with this company they're they're bringing in the material right so they already have the material and I'm helping them organize it and the material that they have on emotional intelligence stuff was just it was excellent I mean just top notch quality information and training I was just so thoroughly impressed and the material was it was filled with um, insights on you know how how to help people develop self awareness, how they can navigate emotionally charged situations. It was just awesome. It was inco- incorporating top notch insights from behavioral and cognitive science. I I think it's stuff like every single person should learn about. All I kept thinking about though, as I was working on it, was wow, like practicing these strategies would they make someone more Christ-like? And I kind of felt like they did. And that's an interesting thing, right? Does this secular emotional intelligence training program, is it actually making someone more Christ-like? And then another question or an idea, a thought dawned on me. Like there's an implied narrative structure here about how the world ought to function That's running in the background of this program in a company that most people would consider to be secular. And again, you guys know how I feel about that word. And it's kind of the point I'm getting at today. This is so fascinating to me because these, these ethical norms and values that get communicated in all sorts of institutions and domains that many people would label as non-religious for obvious reasons, they have so much of their ethical unction informed by an assumed narrative that is fundamentally theological. In the specific case of this emotional intelligence training, the question has to be asked why, when I'm triggered by something that makes me angry, do i should I not immediately respond to that anger and just punch the guy at work right in the face who bothered me, and you might say, well, the answer to that's simple paul like you Get trained to do that so that, um, you know, if you felt that and you wanted to punch somebody in the face at work, you wouldn't because you would get in trouble at work or maybe even arrested for assault, right? Again, that's like, that still doesn't get at the reasons why we have those built in repercussions for those specific behaviors and why we label specific behaviors as healthy, unhealthy correct or incorrect moral or immoral one of the interesting thought experiments might be to consider a theoretical culture let's let's get nerdy here i'm a nerd i confess it and let's consider a hypothetical theoretical culture here let's take the klingons from star trek okay and those of you who are familiar with klingon culture you get this question, okay, and if you're not familiar with Star Trek Klingon culture, that's all right. I'll, I'll give you a little tutorial on it in a moment. But the question for those you're familiar with this culture that I want to present to you is: Do you think this sort of like ethical, emotional intelligence training that I'm working with this company on? Do you think that those sort, that sort of ethical training with those sorts of ethical norms? would fly with the Klingons and like, let's say, an employee training on one of the Klingon Birds of Prey ships, right? <laughs> like, obviously, it wouldn't work. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Klingons, um, I'm not mandating that you get as nerdy as me in this regard, but it might be helpful to to think through and to understand a little bit about this as part of our thought experiment here. The Klingons in Star Trek, they were notoriously, they notoriously embodied a very different ethic from the Federation. And the Federation is like the, 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 the culture of the protagonists in the story. I hesitate to say the good guys, but they're the good guys. Low Trekkies have plenty of debates about whether or not Federation values are really good or not. We won't get into all that. Um, the Klingons, however, like they value anger. They value violent emotional outbursts. So if you've got a problem, the ethical norm is to fight about it, even if that fight Leads to death. In many ways, like the Klingons were designed as a sort of hyper Spartan culture. And, and if you know anything about history and the the ancient Greek city state of Sparta, you also know like the Spartans would do things like just discard children who appeared weak, deformed or disabled anyway. Employee training on a Klingon bird of prey or in Sparta is obviously, it's going to look radically different than the employee training being offered by this like successful American company. Why is that? Well, it's because Klingons had a different guiding story. The Spartans had a different guiding story. And like, nerd alert here, I'm going to go a little bit deeper on this stuff, and I apologize for those of you that have no fascination with Star Trek whatsoever. That's okay. It's just part of the thought experiment. Let's talk a little bit about like the fictional guiding story for the Klingons embodied in their religious narratives. Here's what, as part of the story, the Klingons believed about creation. And this is, I grabbed this from the um, Star Trek wiki on Klingons. Quote, gods were said to have forged the heart of the first Klingon, Kortar, out of fire and steel. Seeing his loneliness, they forged a mate for him. Because they were more trouble than what they were worth, the two Klingons destroyed the gods who created them and turned the heavens to ashes. As punishment, Kortar was condemned to helm the barge of the dead. Creation myths are so important to guiding stories. And you could probably, as you hear that creation myth, you you hear elements of other creation myths and stories, and you can think about the, the two creation stories in, in the beginning chapters of Genesis. And maybe you think about how you know God made Adam and Eve and then assigned them with a particular role and function they were supposed to do. You hear that in the Klingon story, but you can see the story of like rebellion, of fighting against the gods and that's a very different story and, and creation stories are really important to guiding stories to meta narratives because they often set the foundational purpose for what this story is about in this specific case we see a story of gods you know forging klingons out of fire and steel and that this first klingon person killed the gods again uh-uh. not to make some of you unwilling to go this deep in the nerd waters to make you go much further. But even the Klingons had a version of like a Muhammad figure, a Buddha figure, a Christ figure, a messianic figure, and he was called Kalos the Unforgettable. And what was his messianic features? Well, he was the first warrior king, and he was considered to be the greatest Klingon warrior ever. That's what made him the, the archetype for their entire culture. And that's important, that guides what does the good life look like. Now, one of the interesting dynamics like you see in Star Trek that can help you think about, help us think about this this cultural theology I want to explore is in Star Trek, you had this famous character named Worf. Worf was a Klingon who, um, he was born and raised at least for at least a few years of his youth in Klingon culture. He's a Klingon. But um, some catastrophe happened and he was found by human parents that were part of the Federation. And those parents then raised him from being a boy into his adulthood. So here's a guy born into Klingon culture, Klingon story, but then gets raised the rest of his life in the values of the Federation, which I know like Gene Roddenberry was a professing atheist, the guy that um, created the Star Trek universe. But when you look at the Federation, and the values of the Federation, you can see how they mimic in many ways the, um, the Christian values that we do see embedded in Western Civ. So it's this interesting dynamic. You got a guy born into one story, then raised into another, and he's got this kind of competing collision of cultural values within him. And you see this in like Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Those are the, the two primary series that Worf shows up in. You see this narrative tension and you're, you're pressed as you watch the show to with this thought provoking question about whether ethical norms are just culturally relative customs or are there transcultural truths, transcultural objective standards of the good. One of the emphases of postmodern thought has been to reduce all guiding stories and the ethical norms that flow from these stories to simply being culturally conditioned relativistic norms. and That any attempt to establish a transcultural metastory is simply a power grab by the culture who is telling the story and they're doing this to colonize another culture. Obviously, if you know anything about history, you can certainly understand some of this like reactionary angst against hegemonic cultural colonialism. I get it. But we also just, before we even think about that a little bit, we need to understand how like the postmodern critique does implode on itself. When postmodern relativism... As a guiding story becomes the cultural meta-story, it implodes on itself, right? If you're saying that there are no overarching meta-stories that aren't a play for power, and that becomes the overarching meta-story, <laughs> it simply doesn't work. It collapses on itself. Um, it's, it, it, it's it's just it doesn't. It's non-coherent at that point, and yet, like we can't just because making the postmodern critique a ultimate meta story doesn't work at all. We can't completely dismiss the critique, especially when we think about like hegemonic Christendom from Constantine to the Byzantines to the British Empire, all the way through the, the trail of tears because of America's Manifest Destiny theology. And that was Manifest Destiny was a theological story and beyond. We can see this, and we need to grapple with it. There has been something that happened in Christendom, and I, I'm going to talk about in a little bit the, the distinguishing factors between what I would say is Christendom and the way of Jesus. But Christendom throughout time did act in this colonizing way. You, all you have to do is pick up a history book and read it. I'm not even talking about like, you know, um, you know, the history books that are told from the specific people on the underside of history that were the ones being colonized, you can see it anywhere in the books written by those cultures that were already victorious in their conquests. We see this, and this has been one of the critiques and deep concerns I know John Verveke has had. And, you know, when when John and I, along, you know, in our last conversation with Paul Vanderclay were talking, you know, John expressed this really sincere, deep concern about the nature of what I believe he sees as Christendom, but would call Christianity. John, if I were to put this like in Star Trek terms, like John's got a sincere question about what keeps Christianity from inevitably becoming the Borg and assimilating all cultures. It's a very relevant and very sincere question. And and thinking about all of these things together, I really want to respond to that question. And I want to distinguish between the way of Jesus and Christendom. Christendom is a unique hybrid of some Christian ideas and values, but it's married with the impulses of Alexander the Great. That is kind of part of, that is all part of this shared Western heritage. The Alexander the Great impulse to conquer, to expand culture, and the the way in which Christianity came in offering like a unifying story, a story that could bring all peoples together under one God. You can see how that can function and has at many times functioned like the Borg in Star Trek assimilating all and forcing all into this like monochromatic culture. But this is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not that. And how do I know this? It's because the hegemonic powers of Jesus's day killed him too. Jesus was a Borg threat. How else do I know this? Because the earliest Christian communities they celebrated their cultural and socioeconomic status diversity. When they strayed from that celebration, when they strayed from the way of Jesus, as was the case like in the church in Corinth, they were chastised by Christian leaders. They were chastised by apostolic leaders like the Apostle Paul. Remember, this is what was happening in the communion potluck that I've talked about on several occasions, um, described in Corinthians where Paul told the Corinthian church, remember your baptism and stop having this communion potluck meal where the, the rich elites in the community get to get there first. And they were the ones eating all the food. They're drinking all the wine. They're getting drunk on the wine before even the low status day, wor- day wage workers could get off work and even make it to the table at all. This is a major problem, Paul sees that means they forgot their baptismal profession. They forgot what they had been, the new community they'd been brought into. They forgot the story. Uh, we also see, like in Revelation, the picture of peoples from every tribe and tongue, distinct tribes and tongues brought before the throne of God, and this symbolic city of God that we see in the end of Revelation, the kings of the various nations are bringing their unique gifts to God into the city, a symbol of the beauty of diversity of culture. So here's what I'm proposing to all of you today to try to connect this together. I want to flip this out here and I welcome like your feedback on it in the comment section in the um, or in the discussion forum on Patreon. If you're just listening via audio podcast, what if the way of Jesus simply provides the narrative framework and the empowering spirit for the ethical ideals of a culture to aim towards, while still allowing for unique expression of those values? What if this is the case? What if we stop seeing it as a... a singular culture like, like Christianity, the making disciples of Jesus would bring everybody into this similar monochromatic culture where we're all going to sing the same way in, in, in worship. We're going to have the same music. We're going to have the same food tastes. We're going to ha- dress the same. Uh, we're going to have the same language. We're going to have the same values when it comes to what we do with our time and energy and attention. What if we lost that vision of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And instead we embrace this idea that the way of Jesus provides a narrative structure and the empowering spirit to aim cultures in the right ethical direction and allows for them to have unique expression of those cultural values where some unique cultures are going to be perhaps much more in tune with expressing beauty in a particular way than other cultures Uh, They contribute something to the whole, because to me, this really seems to be the essential Jew and Gentile struggle at work throughout the New Testament. If Jesus is Lord, then what does this mean for Jewish customs, Jewish customs about things like food and circumcision, because Jesus was Jewish, right? So does that mean if you are going to follow the way of Jesus yourself, you must practice all of these ethically Jewish norms. That was the struggle. We see this happening at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The answer they came to, the apostolic witness came to was no. Just because Jesus was Jewish, just because we have a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish Messiah who is the Messiah to all people, doesn't mean that all of you have to incorporate all of these Jewish customs and become Jews yourself. But with that acknowledgement, we also have to acknowledge the other part of the apostolic witness, which was there are ethical norms and boundaries. There's a functional and dysfunctional way to live in the world. And so when we see the 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 way of Jesus being spread throughout the Roman Empire to Gentiles, to the Greco-Roman Hellenistic cultures of their day, there's also this like, hey, Gentiles, you know, your culture has some totally wild and strange ideas. Like, let's just, for example, and you know, for for those of you that are listening with children present or watching with children present, we're going to talk just momentarily about some graphic content here. So just be forewarned, maybe you need to put earmuffs on or (laughs) have them leave the room. Greco-Roman Gentile culture had some very wild and strange sexual practices. And again, I'm not trying to be crass, but the part of the ethical, the new ethical aims that came about as people took into their lives, the story of Jesus was to say, seriously, Mr. Roman Gentile of status, the way of Jesus excludes the possibility for you that you can just go go around and relieve your sexual urges with anyone you wish, male, female, adult, child, slave. You cannot just make people an object of your desires. And so there is like confinement. We can't just say again that, well, that's okay because that was the truth for Hellenistic culture. And there are no transcultural truths. No, the way of Jesus does say there are transcultural truths. There are transcultural ethical norms because there's an optimally ordered and a less optimally ordering uh, ordered function of society, of human civilization and creation. And so we are aiming you towards that. And th- there is injunctions like, guys, you you, you can't just make everybody that has... Like and again, I'm not trying to be crass, but read some the, some some history on Greco-Roman culture and their their sexual ethic, especially among those that had men that were in positions of power and prestige in the Roman world. It's like you can't just go around and think every open orifice is something for you to fill with like, your sexual desires. You just can't do that. But simultaneously, like you want to eat bacon. Go for it. It wasn't something the Jews were allowed to do under the Torah, but the early apostolic witness recognized, no, there's going to be cultural diversity. Now, some of you may hear that and go, well, any sort of like ethical boundaries, will st- that still sounds like a meta-narrative that t- and it's some sort of like form of moral colonizing you're doing here. But like, how far do we take that? Like, are all ethical unctions moral Colonization? Are we fine with the Holocaust? Are we fine with death camps that seem to be acceptable to Nazi culture? So, are we just imposing when we told the Nazis, "Hey, you can't do that"? (laughs) Like, is that is that colonization? How far do we take that? Getting back to this, like company I was doing some work for, do they just go, "Hey, you know what? If you're a Klingon," just go full Klingon mode here and have a fight to the death with someone who ticked you off at work today. Just, just go for it. And you might like laugh at that. It might seem absurd, but ask yourself like, well, why not? Saying no to Klingon or more real, <laughs> historical um, people, saying no to like the Spartan way, we are at least on some level saying no to a degree, at least some degree of the story that does guide their cultural ethics and values and saying, we have to say yes to another story. So by saying, you know what, like we really want to practice emotional self-awareness. We want to regulate our emotions in a way so we don't act violently towards a coworker. We are saying no to a particular story and we are saying yes to another one. Now here's another proposal I want to throw your way. And again, like, give me your feedback on this one, okay? Other cultures and specific disciplines that don't necessarily like originate from Christian subcultures often give us better tools for Christ like transformation than many of the practices that emerge from Christian subcultures. When it comes to the practices that may actually help us manifest more of the values of the way of Jesus in our lives, in our local communities, in our workplaces, we should see that some of the various cultures of the world that have been grasping for the truth, that have been desiring, like really desiring to know the way to live, to know the the optimally functional way for human civilization to function, they actually grabbed onto some things that were true, right? We should see that some of the various cultures of the world um, incorporated disciplines. We should see like the disciplines of science oftentimes give us better tools for transformation than some of the traditional practices that have emerged out of like Christian subculture, and I'll give you just like one example of this. I, I saw on one of my social media feeds like this this Christian TikToker video just randomly popped up on my feeds. Those of you that have social media know how that works. And the headline of this person's video read, "Knowing this will eliminate anxiety." And I thought, man, that's quite a claim. So the clickbait got me. I clicked the video. The person went on to read a Bible verse and give like a 10 second devotional thought. And, and I get, like, the person was probably very well intended. Um, it's a horrible prescription for dealing with anxiety. It's awful. Now, I get it's probably going to get hundreds of thousands of views, a bunch of likes from, from Christian subculture, but conceptually understanding a Bible verse just isn't going to cure someone of anxiety and actually does a lot of hurt to people that are really dealing with anxiety or depression. And in fact, when it comes to like efficacy of managing anxiety or addressing it, there are so many other wonderful strategies for ang- addressing anxiety, including things like, like breath work practices, um, dietary changes, um, you know, meditation, and at times even medication you might go, well, none of that stuff is Christian. And if by that you mean none of that stuff distinctly came from a specific subculture comprised of Christians, then yes. But what is Christian is the narrative framework that would drive us to search for healing for those who are experiencing dis-ease, who are experiencing something like maybe crippling anxiety, What is Christian is the underlying narrative, presuppositions of a good creation and a common grace given to all people to discern the workings of the world so that we could figure out like man when i'm experiencing intense anxiety my amygdala has hijacked my brain my prefrontal cortex is not working as it should and in order to regain control of my prefrontal cortex i'm going to need more oxygen so i'm going to need to bring in more breath and i'm going to practice these breathing exercises it's much better than just going, man, I kind of got this Bible verse. And I'm not trying to dismiss that in its entirety because again, like the biblical story gives us the narrative framework for going, like, oh, we should really work to help alleviate people's suffering in the world. But there are practices that functionally work better. So if I learn something in a corporate emotional intelligence course that is for my good and for the good of my neighbor, it is because that practice, even if we have deemed it as secular, is a spirit-empowered practice that is transforming people into the prototype. It's transforming us into the prototype of a a new humanity, Jesus Christ. And again, we might not have always deemed those things as being born of the spirit or spirit-empowered. There is no positive transformation in the world that is not birthed by the Spirit of God, there's not another source of it. There's not another source of light. If it's light that one experiences and it brings them into greater Christ-like transformation and fruits of the Spirit, it, it, there isn't another source of it. Okay, this is this is like essential Christian theology. We do have to think about though, like what happens though in like this emotional intelligence course, if like, if we removed the narrative structure, if we, if we go like truly the claims of secularity have been that there are neutral spaces, there are narratively neutral spaces, there are religion free spaces that don't make any claims on what should be of ultimate concern. If we remove that narrative structure and we replace whatever elements of the Christian story that are still guiding our culture. If we replace that with, like, the Klingon guiding story, does the emotional intelligence class have the same content? No. The obvious answer is no. Does it even exist? Probably not. So, does science... There's a lot of scientism going around, like, science is the solution for everything, but does science inherently possess a positive moral structure? Absolutely not. (laughs) The discoveries of the scientific endeavor can lead to atom bombs and it can lead to cures for diseases, cures for polio, cures for all of these things that would be a detriment to human community and the flourishing of the planet. Science can be used as a tool, which that's what it is, It can be used as a tool which leads to immense discoveries for the well-being of the cosmos, but it can also lead to immense destruction. So science itself requires a guiding story for it to be used explicitly for purposes that are good. And naming that good requires a prior agreement with a particular story, with a particular vision of reality, whether we are consciously aware of it or not. I believe in the Christian story, not Christendom. I believe the Christian story is the universal story that allows for particular cultural expression and variation while still holding to the necessary existence of transcultural truths. Transcultural truths that would prescribe what is the most healthy and most optimally functional human community. And not just like the local community either. Because in some sense, like postmodern thought has said, well, we're fine affirming like meta stories that can be applicable to local communities. But as soon as you start to make that story applicable to other communities that aren't your own, you're doing some sort of play for power and colonization. And we have to think about like, well, if that is true, how do we functionally ever exist? How do we exist in a world that's increasingly globalized where we can engage with other people across the planet. We have to engage, like you work for a company that's multinational and you're doing business with someone else that was raised, let's say in in, in Japanese culture, as we talked about in the Mind Software series that I have, um, that's just been an audio only podcast in times past. We know that there are different cultural values embodied in different cultural expressions. And so when we engage together and we go, well, like we have to work on like, what's business ethics? What would be ethical business practice between you, someone here in America working for a company and also someone in Japan working for a company? Now what we have to do is like, oh, we're working through like, is there a shared narrative framework? Is there a transcultural truth here? So again, we can't just have guiding stories that are for local communities because local communities are increasingly networked together and subcultures are networked together and macro cultures are networked together in ways that has them exchanging and engaging with each other all the time. So what story allows for that sort of engagement, celebrating that there's going to be like cultural diversity in some way while still affirming That there are transcultural truths. There are ethical boundaries to the way that human society, not just local, not just regional, not just national, but what, what would be the narrative structure that would allow for the optimally functional human race? I think that's found in the story embedded in the way of Jesus. But again, I'd love to hear from you in the comment section. Let me know your thoughts to any of these objections, questions, critiques. You can do it again in the comment section of this video, or you can participate in the discussion forum on my Patreon page. Thanks. Look forward to talking to you all again sometime soon. I want to thank you all who have been supporting my work on Patreon. My goal is to provide free theological education to anybody with an internet connection, help people explore the intersection of theology, Christian theology, with all of our efforts to find and make meaning in the world. And I am so thankful to be able to do it with your generous support. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Susan, and Taylor. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do it without you. If you want to find out how to get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community, make sure you check out the link in the description below.